Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View. As always, I am still Adam Lowther, and with me, as always, Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin. Now, on today's Nuclear View, we want to talk about a very special meeting that happened last week. Of course, that is the annual conclave of the arms control community that the Arms Control Association puts on. And if you weren't there, you may not know that Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, uh, gave the keynote speech and made some very interesting remarks uh, about the future of arms control, nuclear modernization, and our adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese, and the North Koreans, and what the administration intends to do about it. So with that, I know, Curtis, you are just chomping at it to get into Jake Sullivan's speech, and I wanted to turn it over to you first. Well, thank you, Adam. Jim, good to see you. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, these, uh, this presentation that uh, Mr. Sullivan made uh, to the Arms Control Association was was very interesting. Uh, if for those of our listeners who are following uh, the NIDS uh, Twitter uh, site, uh, the handle is at Think Deterrence on Twitter. Um, we laid out uh, sort of the top ten takeaways um, on this. Uh, on his presentation. And I just kind of wanted to share just a few of these things. Uh, I mean, uh, you can watch uh, uh, Mr. Sullivan's presentation uh, on YouTube and and the White House page and PBS, uh, all the folks, the usual folks that, that carry these sorts of things. And, and it is interesting uh, to, to, to watch and to listen to. Um, and you're going to hear a lot of sort of the usual things, I think, uh, or what you might expect uh, with regard to arms control and a, uh, frankly, a, a democratic administration. Um, but what I wanted to point out here as we get started, Adam, is some of some of the things, the the undeniable truths, because uh, because Jake Sullivan told us today, uh, or at the, the day of this presentation. And so I thought we would start with just a few a few of these here. Um, and so the, the first thing he noted in his presentation, uh, that for those of those naysayers out there who think that the uh, benevolent uh, People's Republic of China is, is really not bent on changing their nuclear disposition, uh, he has confirmed that China is on track to have 1,500 warheads by 2035. Uh, that's just about 12 years away. I mean, that's right around, right around the corner. Uh, he confirmed that China has declined to share the size and scope of its nuclear forces. This is very important because uh, a lot of folks out there, and especially our disarmament folks, our disarmament advocates, want to tell us how much they really know about the Chinese arsenal. And, uh, and, and quite frankly, we don't know anything about it. And Mr. Sullivan sort of confirmed that. He confirmed that nuclear weapons equal strategic stability. Uh, he said that um, uh, he noted that the JCPOA um, has failed to stop Iran 
from enriching nuclear uh, nuclear weapons grade uranium. He validated the U.S. nuclear. Hey, triad. let me hold on there, Curtis. Okay, I wanna I wanna take issue with that because I think what he said was that President Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA is what allowed the Iranians to, you know, enrich uranium and that because there were no more constraints, these very strict constraints that he pointed to that were part of the JCPO, once they were taken off, then Iran, you know, enriched uranium to near weapons grade level. I think that's what he said. So I, I don't, well, I don't know that he blamed the JCPOA because he was in the last administration and was part of the, you know, the, the group that advocated for and, and worked that. So I would take issue with that observation, <laughs> Adam, in that the JCPOA was not destroyed. It still existed even after President Trump uh, removed the, uh, the U.S. participation in the agreement, not a treaty, an agreement. There were many, many other states uh, and I would argue that uh, uh, states like France and Russia and the United Kingdom uh, are heavily influential states who are still holding Iran to uh, to the, the meaning of the JCPOA. And so uh, I, I would I would say that these types of agreements should not be linchpinned on whether or not the U.S. Uh, is in fact involved in these things, especially if the, if the U.S demands that other nations be a part of these sorts of sorts of agreements, then then we ought to be able to have, these agreements ought to be able to stand whether the U.S. is in them or not. Well, maybe that's the the real lesson learned is that former great powers really don't matter anymore. And it's really only the United States and perhaps Russia and China that matter in terms of shaping, you know, international politics, because it seems what you're saying and this is, you know, in many respects, what uh, Jake Sullivan said is that absent U.S. participation in the JCPOA, the Iranians did what they wanted. Yeah, I'm sure the French would 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 probably take uh, take issue with that uh, observation. Um, I would say that really what we learned is is it didn't matter who was engaged in the JCPOA. Uh, nations whose who has national interest, their national interest to require nuclear weapons, will do so. No matter what, and if if you're uh, going to enter into agreements and then allow the um, uh, allow the situation to sort of run away with itself, uh, this is where we're going to be. I would argue that weapons grade uranium was going to happen at some point anyway. Uh, even the JCPOA, um, after 15 years, which would have been about. 20, uh, well, after 10 years in 2025 begins to allow more enrichment to occur. And after 15 years of 2030, all those restrictions go away anyway. Uh, so, um, uh, so here we are. And, uh, uh, so now we'll have to figure out how deterrence will work. And that dovetails on the announcement just today, at least at the time of this recording, um, that the Iranians have displayed their first hypersonic cruise missile. Um, so interesting that they got one before the United States does. Um, okay. Hey, uh, let me move on here with my list so that, so that Jim can comment on any of these here, but I appreciate the interlude. 
Um, yeah, I'm enjoying the uh, I'm enjoying the banner there, Curtis. <laughs> As I said, Mr. Sullivan validates the U.S. nuclear triad again. I would say to the disarmament folks, uh, we need all three legs of the triad, and uh, the administration validates that not only in the NPR and in the National Defense Strategy, but again reiterated here by the uh, National Security Advisor. Um, he notes that he believes the U.S. does not need to increase its nuclear forces the number of its nuclear forces to outnumber the combined total of our competitors in order to successfully deter them. Now, this is a tremendous, tremendous debate here that I think hasn't happened yet. Uh, my first question to that statement would be is, how does he know? Did he ask him? You know, how do you know that? Uh, quantity does have um, uh, a lot of meaning, uh, especially a quality all its at- own. Well, that could be, but it is a culture's value. Some cultures value quantity. They're counting nose cones, right? And if you have fewer nose cones than they do, they may perceive that uh, you're weaker. Uh, so they don't they don't necessarily uh, maybe understand all of the nuance. But we'll we'll save that one for a little bit more here in a little bit, I'm sure. Um, but Mr. Sullivan goes on to say that he believes that conventionally armed hypersonic missiles. Um, can, that can, can reach heavily defended and high-value targets, that they have a deterrent value. Uh, I'll note that the U.S. doesn't currently possess any of this capability. And so it is very difficult uh, to deter today with something you won't have for months or years to come. Um, he says that uh, he also notes that Russia and China are developing nuclear-capable hypersonic missiles. Very interesting. Uh, very interesting that we don't seem to f- find that to be provocative in any way. But it is, of course, if we put a nuke on our hypersonic missiles when they finally get developed. Uh, the need to deter uh, the uh, two nuclear near-peer powers will not occur until the 2030s. I would tell you, if you're not preparing for the 2030s now, you're already behind. And so this is the kind of, I think, dangerous thinking that will that will put us at a deficit in the 2030s because we don't think that this work even starts until then. Um, Mr. Sullivan goes on to to um, validate the success of U.S. extended deterrence, and that its promise remains a priority, though it's solely for non-proliferation reasons. The administration uh, heavily values non-proliferation. Uh, we saw that with the effort and with the South Koreans here very recently. Um, but it is a challenge, I think, for the administration, because how do you keep your numbers down if you are trying to promise numbers to other nations in your extended deterrence promise? You know, Curtis, there was a uh, article out probably this afternoon talking about the Japanese and their desire to see more in terms of commitment from the United States as regards extended deterrence towards Japan. So this is a big issue. It is. It is. Two more here, and then I'm going to let Jim make his comments here because I appreciate the extended time here. Um, Two things here. So so Mr. Sullivan notes that he believes Russia will continue to adhere to the New START limitations uh, despite their suspension of the treaty and that there's been no verification to these numbers and over the last three years and counting. Um, and that he will, quote, take their word for it and will continue for, uh, to ensure that the U.S. adheres to the treaty limitations. 
essentially, Mr. Sullivan believes that the U.S. can be in an arms control treaty all by itself. I find that to be fascinating, a fascinating statement to the Arms Control Association. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a, the same country that we, we, you know, has invaded sovereign nations in this sense, used nuclear coercion to, in, 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 to enhance that capability, whose leader we've declared a war criminal. Curtis, we're going to take their word for it. Curtis, we're, we're leading yes. by example. We are we're leading, leading by example. And people will follow it. You, you just got you got to believe. Right, right. And finally, uh, he noted that uh, that uh, he's willing uh, to subject the U.S. to non-treaty arms control efforts to include the United Nations and the P5 nations, which include Russia and China. OK. And so, against, again, Mr. Sullivan seems to believe that Russia and China share the same interest in managing nuclear risk as as uh, we do, or the, the, the British do, or, or maybe perhaps the French. Um, considering that it is the Russians and the Chinese who are using nuclear coercion language and, and techniques, if you will, today, I find that fascinating um, that our, our chief policy officer in this space um, is, is, is willing to engage with them in managing nuclear risk. You know, this is the kind of thing in my mind that is it, it, it can be somewhat off-putting, much like when we you know we see uh, you know North Korea become the the you know run the UN Council for Human Rights. You know, so you know, these are the kinds of things that just sort of are, are laughable, and I think they they lower credibility um, uh, in a lot of these things. Let's remember that the NSA uh, and Mr. Sullivan, while the National Security Advisor is a position that is a political position um, that is not a, a confirmational p- position by the Congress, by the Senate. And, and so um, he, uh, Mr. Sullivan doesn't have to answer uh, to anyone but the president. He serves at the pleasure of the president. Uh, and, and I don't discount his qualifications, but I, I think that there are some challenges here in, uh, in, in, in some of his, his idealistic uh, aspirations with regard to the current realism of the world. To Over me, you, this, this sort of harkens back to that article we wrote about hopium addiction. Yes. And it seems that there is widespread hopium addiction in the White House. Uh, we knew it was widespread at the Arms Control Association, <laughs> but apparently it's, it's more widespread than that. Jim? Yeah, Adam, yeah, I'll chime in here. Well, thank you yeah, very much for the, the setup. And uh, as our audience has heard many times, I'm the technical engineer side here. So arms control and diplomacy is not part of my forte, my background. And so I always like to look at these things from the outside in and give that perspective. So the first thing that I did when we, we talked about doing this uh, arms control podcast is I backed up and said, you know, I've talked about arms control before, but what in the world is arms control? And basically, as I looked it up, it's a, you know, a term for international restrictions upon development, production, stockpiling, proliferation, and usage of small arms, conventional weapons, and weapons of mass destruction. And basically, it's exercised through diplomacy. Um, and diplomacy, of course, is important to keep nations, uh, you know, keep nations uh, from um, going awry 
and, uh, and of course, keep us at peace. So those things are very important. And I get that. But I back up and say, in the area of arms control, and especially looking at these points that Curtis brings up, and I looked, I saw them uh, uh, earlier uh, when, when, he, when he spoke of them, um, but I, I see those as all being done in the way that I approach nearly every agreement I make. And if you've ever worked with NIDS or worked with myself, you'll know my standard comment is no agreement works unless everybody wins. Because if everybody wins, then everyone wants to be a part of it. So when someone, I, what I've begun to do is I've, I've looked out at the historical facts here, and Curtis and Adam, you correct me if I'm wrong, but how many organizations have ever pulled out of an arms control agreement and then reduced their arms on their own because it was in their best interest? I've never Nor seen have it. I. Everyone leaves the arms control agreement and they always want to increase the arms. So what is in their best interest? Well, they obviously are operating in their best interest. It's only the agreement that provides the framework. And if we're, as Curtis says, if we are the only ones in this arms control agreement with ourselves, what are we benefiting to ourselves in this agreement? And I don't see that. Um, the other piece of this I think that's interesting, and, and I'm, I'm curious as to Curtis and Adam's response to this, is as we look at the timing of this, it's now 2023, and we're talking about 2030. We're talking about seven years from now. It takes a long time to build a program, develop a program, uh, and, and then fund, you know, fund a program, develop a program, initiate a program, test a program, and employ a program that is going to be trained and ready to roll in order to be the deterrent. And that's not very long, seven years. I mean, it can be done. We did have the Manhattan Project, but I just don't see us in the kind of a mood that would put together something like the Manhattan Project in the past based upon the restrictions and capabilities we have in our country. And I don't think it's in the world's interest for us to have a Manhattan Project-like project, although might be in our interest to return to something that we would you know, reinitiate a uh, a, develop, uh, a, a renewed uh, interest in developing our nuclear weapons. So those are my, uh, my comments from the technical side, looking at arms control. But I still want to go back and say, who is really benefiting by pulling out of the arms control agreements? I don't think it's us. Curtis and Adam? Well, I mean, uh, I think you made a uh, an exceptional point when you said who pulls out and then reduces. And that's, that's really, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought about that before, but it's, it's a great point. And the Russians, you know, they haven't abrogated the treaty. They're just not participating in the treaty. And of course, uh, as Jake Sullivan said, you know, we're going to continue to follow the treaty and we invite the Russians back at any time. And we invite uh, the the Chinese to participate in a, in a new trilateral arms control agreement. And so it seems that, and I, I guess it's one of those things that, you know, there's this, uh, there's, it's a great quote and I, I can't remember it, but it basically said that, you know, in the life of a great power that it's, you know, probably four generations before that great power, you know, sort of loses its oomph and has to get knocked down to, to then get back up. 
And it seems like we're kind of in that period, particularly, you know, since World War II. And so uh, this desire to maintain the status quo and for the United States to essentially continue to guide the international system without challengers and the expectation that great powers like Russia and, and China that do want to change the system are going to sort of follow our lead regardless. It, it seems a bit naive on, on the part of the administration. And I just wonder when the president gets his, you know, morning intelligence brief and when Jake Sullivan sees, you know, sees the Intel, how, how is their idealism never sort of, you know, it, it continues to burn it's in that flame is never put out, which is what sort of shocks me. Yeah, Adam. Uh, and, and let me, uh, let me go further sort of tongue in cheek. I mean, how many people have cheated on an arms control agreement and said, we'll reduce ourselves by, I don't know, from 8,000 to 6,000. And then surprise, we like, we went all the way down to 3000 because, you know, we're, uh, we're setting an example. Like no one does it. There's a point it made here um, in, you know, in the numbers, if you will, but also in who wins here, which flips me back to my uh, original uh, comment about diplomacy is what is in it for the Russians and what is in it for the Chinese to be part of the arms control agreement? That's the question that I haven't heard an answer to. And I read through, you know, the, 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 the talks at the arms control meeting, and I haven't heard a single person say, here's the carrot along with the stick. Okay. I don't see it. Chris? So Jim, I, it's a spot on observation. And so let me give you my, my two cents on what I think that is. Um, the arms control agreements are designed to be constraining, right? They're supposed to constrain behavior or constrain numbers or constrain posture. Um, and it, as long as they, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's three rules, the three things that have to happen. For, for an arms control treaty to to not only occur, but to actually hold. And those are, and I'll very quickly, those are, one, at the end of the day, they the, the, the parties engaged in that treaty must still believe that their national interests, their security needs are still met. Okay. Uh, the second one is, is that there is unquestionable verification. And the third one is you have to have a symmetry of desire. In other words, you can't want it more than they do. Absolutely. Because if you do, they'll take advantage of you. And so, uh, and, and way I see right now in the New Star Treaty and its suspension is we're in violation of all three of those things. Um, we, are, we want this thing more than they do. <laughs> That's why they're not in it and we are. Um, uh, it's not meeting their security needs, which is why they left it. Although partially it's to punish us for our support for the Ukraine war. Um, and, um, and in the middle of that, there's absolutely no verification going on. Right. So, so this thing's a disaster right now and, and actually has been since COVID started because there hasn't been any verification. And so if we don't have verification, then we are in a treaty all on ourselves. We are trusting an adversary. Uh, who is in? Who is openly engaged in in battlefield combat, 
violating the sovereignty of, of, of a large nation in Europe that is costing the American taxpayer billions of dollars to defend it and will continue to cost the taxpayer billions to rebuild Ukraine. Uh, the last estimate uh, a month or two ago from the World Bank, $411 billion to rebuild Ukraine today, right? As, right, as of now. There's still much more damage to happen. So sad. Uh, so and, sad. And so... Uh, so this is this is where we are, and and our leaders uh, choose to just sort of say, well, we'll we're going to continue to follow it. We'll trust that they will, and we'll hope that they come back. What motivation does this does Mr. Putin have to do anything? He is clearly getting his cake and eating it too, because he, he believes he believes that we are not cheating. He's not afraid of us. He's not afraid of that. He's not afraid of that nuclear that nuclear issue. So Jim, your question was, I'm getting around to it here so we can move on is what will motivate these nations to, to enter an agreement of any sort with us. And that is, it must be in their national interest to do so. They must need to be in there. And there's really only two ways you can either induce them through bribery, make it worth their while in another way, or you've got to scare them enough that Whatever you're doing is intolerant enough to them that they're ready to negotiate. Well, and that's yeah. that situation is everything that Mr. Sullivan said we are not going to do. Yeah, Curtis, and I would say that on the end of bribery, which seems to be the direction we tend to go very often, uh, I always look at you know, again. I'm very simple. Look at things very simply in terms of personal personal interactions. If I bribe you with something, I give you a hundred dollars to not say something. That's great. But once you have the hundred dollars, you can say it anyway. That's right. So now I got to bribe you again. Yep. And the only thing that's going to stop you is the fear of something happening the next time you come back and try to you know, take I, that bribe. Right. And that's what I see happening. right now. I think now. you left out one important part there, Curtis. And, and that Which is one? would, you know, there's another reason why the Russians would engage in an arms control agreement with the United States is because they know they can cheat. And the United States will abide by those agreement agreements. So there's biological weapons convention, the mm -hmm. chemical weapons, the, I mean, open skies. I mean, I'm forgetting some, but they've cheated on all of them. And yep. the United States, because it has an irrational love of arms control agreements, because it's when you're, when you have a, you know, what I would call like a quasi religious view of arms control. And it's, and it's a moral issue for you. And, and this is sort of my point, which I think it explains why the arms control association and why the administration continues to push for this is because it's a, it's a central tenet of the faith is that Arm, we must do arms control. We must have arms control. And when it's a central tenet of the faith, you can't go anywhere but there. And so it doesn't really, it's arms control for the sake of arms control. That's right. It is an end unto, unto itself. It, it is. Well, I, I, I would like, I, I'd like to just point to one piece. I think that we have skipped over and I, I just want to give it a little bit of thought. And that is the, the, you know, one of the objectives. So I, you know, did a little more digging than I originally left people think I did. And that is that the real original or, or conceptual piece of the arms control is that if you can avoid war, which is costly, 
to both to everybody. If we went to war, everybody would lose lives, money, land. We'd kill, you know, kill things that we want. We want to avoid that. So we don't want to go to war. I'm just pointing that out, that 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 sort of is the mantra of the arms control people, whether we agree or not. And, you know, I believe that deterrence is what avoids the war and keeps us at peace. And you deter, as Curtis always says, by putting fear in the heart of those that would wage war, but not putting so much fear that they do it anyway. And that's the calculus. But arms control, I think, is a part of that. So I don't want to, I want to throw that out the window, but I'm not sure uh, if not everyone wins, it's a good agreement. And I don't see everyone winning here right I, now. I don't know that peace um, is their primary overriding concern because, you know, one of the things that Jake Sullivan said was that we are going to develop these awesome conventional capabilities and it's very clear that the Russians and the Chinese absolutely fear those precision strike capabilities because they're imminently usable and they're imminently usable against them. And so therefore this idea that we're going to somehow replace nukes with, with awesome conventional capabilities, that's not, <laughs> that's not a road to peace. That's a road to war. Because it's it, it fundamentally says we're okay with great power wars, we just don't want to use nuclear weapons. You you can kill your ninety or hundred million, just don't do it with nukes. Do it with conventional weapons, starvation, desolation. Do it with those things. Just don't do it with nukes. Well, Adam, you you, you couldn't be more right in this sense. Uh, the Russians don't fear our nuclear arsenal. They fear our conventional arsenal. And we continue uh, to, uh, and the, the, the nuclear disarmament community continues to advocate for the elimination of nuclear weapons. They want to eliminate weapons that are, on one hand, they'll say are unusable, right? A nuclear war shouldn't be, can't, shouldn't be fought and can't be won uh, and so forth. With, with weapons that are, in fact, usable and have been usable for decades and decades and decades. And against an adversary now that's going to be more paranoid and, and uh, less capable of matching uh, the West here uh, in precision-guided types of weapons, since a lot of their stuff isn't working. Um, and, um, and we're going to be we're, – we're actually going to intimidate them even more. And so when you yes. come to this fear on our interest, right, Thucydides' reasons for going to war, you're going to envelop more fear. Yes. And this is not the good fear. This is the bad fear. Yes. This is the fear that Jim was alluding to that said that I am so scared I need to go to war with you with a bigger – with a different weapon. And uh, and so that's that's the problem here is that we keep we keep miscommunicating. The goal should be peace. Not war without, not war without nuclear weapons. I can't understand why the the disarmament community uh, keeps wanting to make conventional war great again. I just don't understand it. Jim, I tell you what. Unfortunately, our time is up, so I'm going to have to give you the last word. So just make sure it's a great last word. Hmm. I'm out of good quotes <laughs> for this one. 
So I'll just go back and reiterate the one thing I always say about any agreement. Everybody has to win in an agreement. They have to have some skin in the game. And if they pull out of the agreement and go another direction, it tells you what's in their interest. And I think that's the first step. And I appreciate the two of you. I threw the bone out there and you, you ran with it. And that is which makes us more, more at, at uh, peace is war without nuclear weapons or war with the potential for nuclear weapons. And I think we can see where that's, that's gone in the past, historically at least. And so, yeah, maybe not a great quote, but that's where I stand on this view of arms control. And so, Adam, go ahead and close us out. Well, thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. And, of course, thanks to you, Jim and Curtis, for another interesting episode. And we hope that you will certainly join us on the next episode of The Nuclear View. But until that day comes, we want to always encourage you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength, and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.